Saudações aos ouvintes, salve Maria Santíssima, eu sou Guilherme do Vale e está iniciando agora mais um Legiocast, o primeiro podcast católico e nacionalista brasileiro. A edição de hoje será muito especial. Convidamos hoje para participar conosco o Dr. Eugene Michael Jones, ou E. Michael Jones, escritor católico americano, professor universitário aposentado e autor de diversas obras interessantíssimas, como o livro The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit e Libido Dominandi, que tratam sobre assuntos muito relevantes, como o espírito revolucionário judaico e a revolução sexual. Trataremos hoje aqui do seu último livro, é, que em português é Modernos Degenerados, lançado pela Vídeo Editorial. E além de mim e do professor Jones, estão também presentes no podcast o Matheus Holtz e o Carlos Felipe, diretores da Legião da Santa Cruz. O podcast será em inglês, né? mas teremos legendas aí para os ouvintes. Obrigado, uh, Guilherme. Uh, Dr. Jones, it's a, a pleasure and an honor to have you. Thank you for uh, being here with us. De nada. Thank you. Um, to start, uh, please tell us what is Degenerate Moderns? Why should Brazilians read it? Well, uh, uh, I, what I'd like to do is to, uh, mention chance books I wrote. Uh, this book was written uh, 30 years ago uh, when I was uh, embarking on my career, sort of at the beginning of it. And it's a, uh, it was followed uh, a trajectory in my life that I think I'd have to describe uh, to explain what the book uh, means. So uh, I was um, hired as a professor of American literature at St. Mary's College after getting my PhD from Temple University. Uh, one year after I started off on what I thought was a tenure track contract. I got fired uh, because of my stand uh, against uh, abortion. I was against abortion. I was shocked to see that I could be fired from a Catholic college for doing that. But what 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 occurred to me when, when I got there was that there was there was something beneath the surface. It was sort of like, you know, you go into a room and there's some there's some bad smell here. There's something just on the borders of your consciousness that something's not right. And I think it was uh, sexual corruption. I think there was a, a large measure of sexual corruption that swept through the United States and swept through the Catholic Church and swept through these institutions. And it, it had taken root there. It wasn't just, you know, a passing thing where people make mistakes and they're sorry the next day. This had taken root there. And we, we later saw the fruits of this when, uh, just two, two summers ago, Cardinal McCarrick uh, reached the highest level of the, of the uh, Catholic Church. He was a cardinal. He was only one step higher, and that's Pope. And he was a, a, a flagrant homosexual. Uh, and how do you get to the highest level of the church being a flagrant homosexual? Well, uh, Cardinal or Archbishop Vigano said it's because there is a homosexual mafia. Uh, inside the church that protect each other and promote each other's careers and so on and so forth. So that's what I stumbled across at uh, St. Mary's in Notre Dame. And so I started to write. I thought, we'd, I'm not going to go back to academe. I'm going to continue to uh, do research into what happened here. So what started uh, 
when I started what was I thought was going to be a Catholic magazine. And it was going to talk about the corruption in the Catholic Church. And I sort of was thinking about sexual corruption at that time. So I did this for about, um, founded the magazine in 81, and then uh, gradually got a following. And suddenly these people start looking to me for advice uh, on information and things that are happening in the church. And one of the things they were really interested in was Medjugorje. Uh, so in 1988, I went to Medjugorje. I think I figured out what was going on there, which was not easy. Um, you had to do investigative journalism. I wrote an article, a two-part article period in September of 1988, in which um, I exposed the fraud, who was behind it, and so on and so forth. Again, there was sexual corruption there. That was two uh, Franciscan priests who were heavily involved in sexual corruption. They were the authors of uh, this apparition. So I wrote the article and I sort of waited. I'm just going to wait here to see whether I get the Pulitzer Prize or the Nobel Prize for this great piece of writing. And it turns out every I lost half of my subscribers. I built after almost 10 years of trying to build this up. Uh, I, you know, they, they didn't want to hear it. This was not a story that they wanted to hear. I told the wrong story. I, I had two millionaires pay my way. I knew what the story was that they wanted to hear. It was bad bishop, good seers. And it turns out it was the exact opposite. It was good bishop, bad seers. So anyway, at this point, I come into a feeling, a sense of disillusionment about uh, the current situation. Uh, but I still have the strong feeling about sexual corruption and the importance of that. And so I start reading biographies of the people who were influential when I was at the university. So one of them was Jean-Paul Sartre, started reading his biography. And it turns out that uh, no one was interested in Sartre anymore. He was uh, out of fashion. No one was willing to pay for an advance for a biography. Uh, but someone did write a biography. And it turns out that, uh, you know, I thought I understood him. There were parts I didn't understand. Well, it turns out that uh, the parts that I didn't understand may have had more to do with the drugs he was taking than my general stupidity. Uh, and at this point, I started to realize uh, the biographies of these people are important. Biography is important. Uh, now, I was schooled, there was a, the, when I was studying literary criticism, there was a school called the New Criticism, which was basically a form of sola scriptura, where every man had the right to interpret his own poetry, just the way the Lutherans had, every man had a right to interpret the Bible. So it was kind of democratic, and you deliberately avoided any type of biographical reference. And here I'm starting to realize, no, it's important. As a matter of fact, it can be the most important thing. So how do you know whether it's really important or maybe not so important? Well, I, I the formulated this uh, statement in the beginning. It's in the introduction of Degenerate Moderns. And I said, you have two choices in the intellectual life. Either you subordinate your desires to the truth or you subordinate the truth to your desires. And so if you subordinate your desires to the truth, your biography isn't all that important because what you're talking about is the truth. But if you do the opposite, then your biography is the most important thing. If you subordinate the truth to your desires, the most important thing in your thinking is your desires. It's obvious. It's obvious. And so the only way I'm going to understand what you're really saying is if I know your biography and know your desires. So I started to do research in one person after another. So 
Margaret Mead, uh, the first chapter in this book. These are all appear in his articles in Fidelity magazine, which became Culture Wars over a period of a couple of years. So Margaret Mead says Samoans don't take adultery seriously. And then an Australian comes along and says, no, they do. Well, how do you adjudicate this? How do you adjudicate this? Who's telling the truth? So you look into the biography of Margaret Mead, and it turns out that uh, she committed adultery before she went to Samoa. So suddenly she's got a motivation here uh, because she's going to make wrong right. And so what happened is as I started to read these various modern figures and all of their modern ideologies, this pattern began to emerge. This is what they did. Uh, you know, Sigmund Freud, uh, you name it, all the people I've listed in there uh, all had this in common, that they subordinated their uh, the truth to their desires. They came up with an ideology that was popular for a time, and now it's they're all pretty much completely discredited. That's how I got involved in that book. Another question, uh, Mr. Jones. As Catholics, we are often debating not only degenerate moderns, but also atheists, Protestants. These debates almost always focus on the merits of the arguments, but sadly, we frequently fail to bring up their motivations. And, and this one great contribution that you made to the debate by bringing to our attention the ulterior psychological motives behind the beliefs. For example, you bring up Paul Witt's argument that atheists are always people with further problems. You also mention how Protestantism is based on looting Catholic property. We are very interested in hearing you tell us a little more about the connection between the truth and good, about how one's thoughts must align with their behavior, and how it's impossible to be faithful to the truth if one doesn't first behave according to the moral law. Right. Right. Well, the first, uh, actually, the beginning of Logos Rising, my most recent book, talks about the four atheists, uh, the, the, the uh, new atheists, the four famous new atheists. It was a, a really uh, a hot movement about 10 years ago. And one of them was uh, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, and so why do you why do you believe that there's no God? This is uh, this is something that Paul Vitz got into. He wrote a book. I knew Paul Vitz. We, he read Degenerate Modders. We were in conversation at this period of time. Paul Vitz was a psychologist at NYU, uh, and he started doing his own research. And he came to the conclusion that all the major atheists had problems with their fathers. So he started to look into that. Why? And after you do that, again, it's the, it's the same principle. It's just applied to a slightly different area. So why do they do that? Why do they do that? Well, because God is a father. So Sigmund Freud said God is an exalted father. That's true, but not really in the way that Sigmund Freud meant it. He meant that there's all you have is your father and you extrapolate from your father to God. No. Your, your father is a representative of God. He's the best representative of God, the father, in your life. He's the most important representative. And if he does a bad job at doing that, you're going to have difficulty uh, relating to God. Okay? Now, 
interesting case here. Let's look at uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, because he's got a brother. And this, this brings up an interesting possibility. Uh, his brother's, um, what's his, what's his brother's name? Forget the, the brother's name. I had it once. Uh, Peter Hitchens. Peter Hitchens. Okay. Right. So Peter Hitchens, uh, and, uh, Christopher Hitchens started off the same way. They're both extremely rebellious because of the circumstances of their family, namely the father. Uh, now this father, uh, was a war hero in world war two, but after the war, the British Empire collapsed, and so they didn't need a navy anymore. And so he was basically dumped into civilian life, where his position was not particularly heroic. Uh, his wife left him. Wife ran off with a Protestant minister, an Anglican minister, and then the two of them committed suicide with a suicide pact in Greece. So you've got one, two guys with the same father, but... They're, in many ways, two different fathers as well. So Peter Hitchens comes back and he becomes, uh, overcomes his adolescent rebellion, uh, repudiates it all, and becomes a conservative with all of the baggage that goes with it. In other words, an English conservative, which means he's defending uh, the indefensible, basically, the, the English royalty uh, that got to start with theft, the theft of Catholic property, all this type of stuff. You can't look too closely into this, uh, but that's what a conservative is. You don't look too closely into the past. Uh, Edmund Burke was an example of this. But so he he f focuses on the naval hero. But Christopher, on the other hand, focuses on the kind of broken man that the father ended up being. Well, why? what is the difference here? They both have the same father. If Witz's thesis is uh, father deprivation is the cause of atheism, uh, I think that's true. Why did Christopher choose one aspect and Peter the other? And I think that comes back to the moral life that you're leading when you make the decision. And so the crucial fact here is that uh, Christopher dumps his wife. Okay? Now, she's pregnant as well dumps her, and runs off with another woman. Now, this necessitates something, a dynamic, a psychological dynamic that he's going to follow through to atheism. Because what he's saying is, God's, God's the source of my problem. God is the source of my problem. Uh, I, I'm only unhappy because Society has pushed this idea of God on me. It's a total illusion. And so I'm going to break away with it. I'm going to be really free. And once I'm free, I'm happy. So it's God's fault. And there is no God, by the way. It's the fault of this absent God. I think it goes back to not, it goes back to the thesis of degenerate martyrs. In other words, there's some type of moral problem here at the source of this because. You're, you chose one particular aspect of your father, and your brother chose another aspect, not so much because it was in the father, it's in you. It's your problem, it's your type of, uh, it's your moral state that causes the problem. Now, the man who was most famous for this in all of human history is Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Okay, now, Martin Luther started off as a monk, 
He made sacred vows when he became a priest, vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And at a certain point, he had a problem. What was the problem? He could not control his passions. It's a problem with everyone, okay? And he had it across the board, okay? First of all, he had a drinking problem. He had a chastity problem. And he had an anger problem. And all of those things worked together in him. And so he was uh, had a rebellious spirit because of that, because he couldn't control his passions. And not only that, he couldn't say that I'm the problem. I My problem is that I can't control my passions. He couldn't say that either. And so what happened over this period of time is he began to project that problem onto the church. Now, this is a different, this is the opposite in many ways of what I just talked about, because this, this is a mother problem. It's not a father problem. It's a mother problem. Because the church is our mother. Everybody, from the beginning, almost the beginning, the church is a mother to us. Well, there's only one time Luther mentioned his mother, and she, he said, she beat me because I stole a nut. So he's got an, a, a problem relating to his mother. We all have problems, okay? The, the question comes down is, how are we going to deal with our problems? And I'm saying, if you get involved in immoral behavior, you will not be able to solve your problems. Your problems will take control of your life. And this is what happened over the period of Luther's career. So he gets involved with the, uh, basically, um, the revolution known as the Reformation. And this involves priests and nuns who no longer want to live like angels here on earth by following the vows of chast poverty, chastity, and obedience. And it takes concrete form, and basically Luther and his monk friends start breaking into convents and liberating the nuns. Not sure those one, all of them wanted to be liberated. Some of them did. And so he breaks in, and then he starts uh, making deals, trying to make deals with bishops. Now, he's offering the, he offers the Bishop of Mainz the best-looking nun in the convent. Now, what, what do you call someone who offers a, women, a woman up to some other uh, man for sexual uh, pleasure? Uh, in, in English, we call him a pimp. This is a pimp. Okay, so Luther was a pimp. I hope nobody's offended by me saying this. I hope the pimps aren't offended. Uh, so... This is what he's doing, and because he's engaging in this, he's finding it more and more difficult to control his passions. So he's staying up late with the nuns. He's playing the guitar or whatever else he's playing. He's getting drunk, and he's flirting with the nuns, and people are starting to talk. People are starting to talk, and uh, uh, Melanchthon, who was his mentor, uh, starts mentioning it in letters. I, I think I mentioned this. This is all the degenerate moderns. Uh, people are talking because of his buffoonery. He uses a Greek word, but uh, that's what he's talking about. He's making a fool out of himself by getting drunk and flirting with the nuns and playing his guitar. Wein, Weiber, und Gesang. And so at a certain point, the pressure gets so great, and he makes a decision. What decision does he make? I am not going to sin anymore. I'm not going to get drunk anymore. I'm not going to flirt with them. No, no, he doesn't make, that's not the decision he makes. He decides, I'm going to make wrong right. I am going to subordinate the truth 
to my desires. And that's exactly what he did, does. He, 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 he's sexually attracted to one of the nuns, uh, Katarina von Bora, and he marries her. Okay, it's great to get married, isn't it? Better to marry than to burn. But wait a minute, you took solemn vows that you were not going to do this, and she did too. So you broke your solemn vows. Well, how do you deal with that? Well, the solemn vows, that's the church's problem. It's not my problem, it's the church's problem. And then he goes even farther than that, and this is the really serious part. He says that God is the source of evil. God is the source of evil in this world. And we have no free will. And that was the name of the treatise that he wrote. De servo arbitrio on the enslaved will. We have no free will in the matter. Uh, we just do what God, if God's, we're like a, 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 a donkey. If God is on us and he beats us, we travel that direction, but Satan can get on us and he beats us and we do what he does anyway. This is a complete contradiction of reason, of logos, of practical reason known as morality, of the entire tradition of the West. And that's the legacy of Martin Luther, okay? And then we follow that all the way through. And if you want to see uh, how that uh, played out in history, uh, Logos Rising, my latest book, has a chapter on Hegel, okay? Another example of what I'm talking about. Now, Hegel, they're now talking about 17, he's born in 1770, He's 19 years old when the French Revolution breaks out. And at this point, he's trying to bring two things together. He's a Lutheran seminarian at the time of the French Revolution. So can I bring the Enlightenment and Christianity together? How about the Trinity? Can I explain the Trinity in Enlightenment terms? This is what he sets out to do. It's a, I don't think there's anything wrong with this. Uh, it's, it, it's, he does it in the Phenomenology of the Spirit. He's writing this book. He's writing the prolegomena to it uh, as Napoleon has just conquered the Prussian army. Uh, but it, it, traditional Catholic wisdom says that this is above human understanding. The Trinity is way above human understanding. We wouldn't even know about it unless God revealed it to us. This is revelation. This is a quintessential revelation. You can't get there from natural reason. So they say, then do a contemplation, which means a kind of religious approach to sublime mysteries, fasting and prayer. That is the best preparation. Well, was Hegel involved in fasting and prayer at this point? Uh, no. Okay, no. What was he involved in? Well, it turns out that the very moment when he's just about to finish the phenomenology with the cannons of Napoleon kind of roaring in the background, his chambermaid comes to him and tells him, that she's pregnant. So he's been having an affair with his chambermaid the entire time he's writing the phenomenology. So what happens here? What does he do? This is a crisis. What am I going to do? Well, he falls back on Luther because he's a Lutheran seminarian. Now, this is a time when he was flirting with becoming a Catholic. He had a Catholic girlfriend. He was thinking of becoming a Catholic. And now the crisis comes and he falls back on Luther and he blames God. And wrecks his own system. Because what we're talking about here, we're talking about the dialectic. The dialectic, an sich, für sich, an und für sich, is Hegel's trying to understand the Trinity. Okay, that's I, I can understand that. We all might understand these mysteries. 
But he, now, because of what he's done, he has to introduce evil into the Trinity. Well, that's blasphemy. And not only is it blasphemy, you just wrecked your system. And so once again, we have serious, if you want to read the whole story, it's in Logos Rising. But I mean, you have, once again, you have serious consequences based on the same principle, where suddenly you come to a point and you say, I'm going to subordinate the truth, in this instance, the Trinity, to my desires. In this instance, the Lutheran rationalization of any type of misbehavior by saying we don't have free will. That wrecked his system. Yes, it's uh, it's interesting how um, this is a, a an old book, and I don't mean old in the in a bad sense. It's a book that you wrote uh, several decades ago, and all your subsequent works uh, build upon it. Uh, all of the the, the 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 thesis in libido dominandi and in logos rising, they uh, go back to the general moderns. And another thing that's uh, in the general moderns is the. Uh, the literature, and, it, and this is particularly interesting because this is your background we're talking about. You were a professor of English literature. And uh, when we bring this to a Brazilian reality, uh, you have uh, modernist thought being applied to Brazilian literature in the modern interpretation of uh, works such as, and I'm going to give one example here, and this is uh, a Brazilian classic, Dom Casmurro by Machado de Assis which I, I don't expect you to uh, uh, know it, uh, maybe, but in this novel, long story short, the narrator, Bento, uh, he's the protagonist as well, and he talks about his affair with Capitu and the jealousy that he has for her cheating on him, which becomes a central device in the plot. And until recently, it was understood that she had actually cheated on him, but uh, until, but after a certain point, it became the, the prevalent interpretation, the consensus among the academia. And that's what's taught nowadays, that she never did actually cheat on him, and it was all a figment of his imagination. So uh, if you could talk a little bit to us about how literature uh, is all literature, deep down, is about sexual morality as well. Uh, we would be interested in hearing that. Yes, yes. Okay. Eliminate all of the novels about adultery, and you're going to end up with about five novels. Okay? All of the great novels are about adultery. Okay? Now, if you go to American literature, I was studying American literature. Uh, studied at Temple University, and uh, where there was a course on Nathaniel Hawthorne. The main novel by Nathaniel Hawthorne is called The Scarlet Letter, and it's about adultery. And it's about uh, also about Puritanism, which flowed from Luther, okay? It was a derivation of Lutheranism uh, in English terms, influenced by Calvinism. And it basically said, according to Calvin, that the uh, only the elect could be members of the church. Now, they broke with the sacramental system of the Catholic Church, which means you can't go to confession. And not only you can't go to confession, you have to be a saint in order to be a member of the Church. And this is precisely the situation that uh, the protagonist of the Scarlet Letter is in. It's Dimsdale, it's the, the minister who has committed adultery. 
Well, what do you do when you're elect and you ended up committing adultery? There are two possibilities. Either you say adultery is not a sin uh, or I was never elected. I was never chosen in the first place. I'm not saved. They're the two options. They're the only two options. The one leads to this uh, uh, antinomianism, which happened very quickly uh, in Rhode Island. Okay, so here is Dimsdale, and he's confronted with this existential situation of I'm uh, uh, the elect. I'm part of the elect. And yet I've committed adultery. So what do I do? And I can't go to confession. This is the, this is the, what the, uh, the novel is about. Uh, Hawthorne was the heir of the Puritans. His great-great-grandfather was a judge at the Salem witch trial. Hawthorne uh, re- became, uh, 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 wrote a biography of uh, Millard Fillmore, became president. He became uh, consul in London, made enough money, spent uh, Rome uh, uh, a year in Rome, uh, and was confronted with the Catholic Church right then and there and wrote the marble fawn about his experiences in Rome and was offered, you can tell by the novel, he was offered the grace to become a Catholic and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. His daughter became a nun, not only a Catholic, but she became a nun and founded her own order. But for some reason, Hawthorne uh, could not do this. Okay, now this is a classic of American literature, but it's predicated on one thing, okay, that adultery is wrong. Well, who believes adultery is wrong? Now, let, let me just take any, take any academic audience, any place in the world, and ask how many people think that adultery is wrong. Raise your hand. I guarantee you no one will raise their hand because they have been so uh, corrupted by the study of Foucault and all this other type of stuff that they don't believe. It's all uh, this morality is just a construction of the mind and blah, 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 and, and it's there to oppress us and so on and so forth. That's actually what happened at Temple University. So we're sitting there in the Hawthorne Seminar uh, with Jane Tompkins, okay? Jane Tompkins is the professor, uh, and I'm sitting there with my friend, and this conversation is going on and on in a certain direction. Suddenly my friend says, well, wait a minute. Isn't adultery wrong? (laughs) The obvious question blurts it out in the classroom, and Jane Tompkins says, That's Hawthorne's truth. Well, that was really stupid. Now, why did Jane say that? Well, uh, because she was committing adultery. That's why. Very simple. She was married uh, married to one guy. I think she was living with a second guy. And the guy uh, in question here was Stanley Fish. Stanley Fish was teaching an advanced literary criticism course. He became famous for the subversion of literary criticism. I was in the class. Jane was in the class. At one point, Jane told to me, uh, you know, Mike, she's a teacher. She's a professor. I'm just a student. You know, Mike, you're the only guy who understands what's going on in that class. Right? So thank you, Jane. But then Jane decides she's going to get hands-on experience, and she runs off with Stanley Fish. This is what we're talking about here. If you live that life, literature has no meaning. <laughs> what's the big deal? Why is Dimsdale so upset? Why is he agonizing? Why is he can't sleep at night? What did he do? Is it like having overdue books at the library? Is that what's going on here? So this is this is exactly what happened to the study of literature during this period of time. It became meaningless because you have to accept the moral order because 
talking about any type of human activity of any significance. So they wrecked literature. Yeah, it loses every sense. And uh, it's normalized nowadays. The, that adultery is uh, no big deal. Uh, divorce is uh, accepted worldwide. It's not, it's not a big deal anymore. Right, and now we're up to sodomy. I don't know, we're into transgenderism at this point. But clearly, sodomy is not wrong. And if you say it's wrong, you're a bad person. So if sodomy is not wrong, the second chapter of Degenerate Moderns is about uh, Anthony Blunt and the Cambridge Traders and homosexuality, the homosexual as a subversive, subversive. Uh, I, would, I could be arrested, I think, for uh, writing. I wrote it uh, 30 years ago. If I wrote it now, I could be arrested probably for saying something like that. Yeah, very Mr. much so. Can, can I? Thank you, Carlos. Uh, Mr. Jones, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be talking to you. Uh, uh, I'm thinking about your last two hours, and I would like to to ask you about how to overcome academic environments, different materialism and historicism and romanticism, uh, especially in human sciences, especially when there are so much controversial issues. Uh, as the liberalism in all aspects of human life, especially the sexual, the sexual liberalism, uh, and another ones such as Zionism and the Jewish lobby and the anti-Catholicism, how we can lead with us, with with, with it? How, how can we what? I repeat that last the, the question. How can we what? How can we do what? Can you hear me? Oh, I, I can hear you. My, my microphone was, was out. Sorry. How can we uh, overcome this, this, this environment, this academic environment? Well, uh, this, uh, this is where I, I, talk about, uh, I talk about Hegel or I talk about Vico uh, uh, and talk about the decline of cultures and uh, what Hegel would call the cunning of reason. This, this logic is working itself out right now. This, we're seeing ac academia is destroying itself right now. We don't have to help. They're, they're going to destroy. They're, they're perfectly capable of destroying themselves. Uh, and we just have to uh, be able to explain it to people uh, why they're doing that, why it's necessary for them to do that, and, and what the alternative is. And the alternative is, is Logos, uh, which was the subject of my last book, but uh, what, what do I mean? What do I mean by that? By by the self destruction. When the big issue here now is in the United States is transgenderism, and transgenderism is an attack on being. It's ontological, and so it would be uh, Jacques Derrida would be the man to consult for this. Uh, so, but what they're saying basically is that uh, gender is a social construct. And there is, uh, okay, I can see you can make that conclusion, but what they mean by that is biology is a social construct. This whole distinction between male and female is a social construct that you can simply overturn with your will. Uh, okay, now what happens when you do this is people actually try to do it. And uh, they, they actually, there are people, I, I, we, we are now confronted with this, 
because uh, after Biden won the election or stole the election, um, he appointed a, 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 a man by the name of Richard Levine to uh, Health and Human Services. The problem is that Richard thinks that he's a woman, and he called himself he calls himself Rachel Levine now. Okay, okay, that's we did that. The problem is the we show you're showing a picture of this woman, and you look at it and you think, why is this fat Jew wearing that wig? Why does this fat Jew think that he's a woman? You can't you can't look at that and not think that. I I, I just you have to pretend that this person is a woman, uh, but it's obvious that that is not what's going on here. So you're asked to pretend. That's not going to work. Okay, I'm not going to pretend. Why should I do that? So maybe if you're in an academic setting, you have to pretend or you'll lose your job. Okay, that 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 that's your problem. Okay, but uh, you can't. We have to pretend that we have hegemony over being when we know we don't. And you're proof of it. I mean, I, and not only that, you've been hired to talk to us about health when you've subjected yourself to hormone treatments and God knows what, probably some operation that is going to impact your health in a bad way. And you're now much more likely to commit suicide because of what you did. And so we're so to pretend that's all Oh, oh, that's that's no, that's pay no attention to those thoughts. Okay, but even more so than that, and now we're talking about the cunning of reason, what Hegel would call the cunning of reason. You have a situation now where uh, university sports uh, had to spend as much money on women as they spent on men. Okay, because there's a dogmatic principle here of feminism is that men and women are equal. Well, in some sense, men and women are equal, but one place where they are not equal is sports. I guarantee you they are not equal in sports. And the whole point of Title IX was to create women's sports as separate because you cannot have, I don't care, you cannot have some woman playing basketball against LeBron James. It's not going to work. Never. And so they created the WNBA. Nobody watches it. Nobody's interested in watching these girls play because they don't do it as well as men do. So it has to be subsidized by the NBA and so on and so forth. Well, now you've complete that is social engineering. And that uh, the pretending there was we have to pretend that women are equal to men in every aspect, including sports, when we know that's not true. And the fact that you have separate sports is proof that you know it's not true. I, I, I was at a... Uh, 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 a 10K race. Uh, I'm standing at the finish line. Okay, this is what the finish line is like. A man crosses the finish line. He's the winner. Wait three minutes. Another man crosses the finish line. He's second. Then wait another three minutes. Then five men cross the finish line. Okay? Then we have to wait maybe uh, 20 minutes, and suddenly the first woman crosses the finish line. Okay, now that woman will receive exactly the same amount of money as the man. Even She finished 50th in the race. But the fiction is that she came in with the same time as the man and got the same, the same, she deserves the same amount of money. And then all of a sudden you see women coming in. Now these are skinny women. They're not particularly attractive women, okay, because they spend a lot of time running and they can't compete with men. Even you spend all that time running and you're still fishing way back in the pack. And then finally, 
the good looking women start to arrive across the finish line and they're like 200th and 200th, but because they're good looking because they have a lot more fat on them than the, than the uh, athletic women. That's the reality of the situation. Now, they have, this is the cunning of reason again. What has happened now? Because of transgenderism, you can have a man suddenly declare that he's a woman. Well, why would some man want to declare that he's a woman? But because if, if I'm a woman, I can come in first. I can win the race. And all I have to do is tell you that I'm a woman. I, why, do I have to go through that surgical uh, procedure? Probably not. Are they going to ask me to pull down my pants after the race before they hand me the prize? Probably not, because we're living in a world of illusion. So what happened here is that transgenderism destroyed feminism. That is, that is the process here that we need to keep in mind here of what the way history works and the way this will bring about the undoing of the very thing that we think we can fight about. We should not, we probably can't fight about it. We should probably just sit back and watch it destroy itself. Mr. Mr. Jones, there's a well-known author in the Brazilian Academy, Edward Said, teacher, uh, university teacher in New York, who explained how literature influences the creation of a political worldview and social values. At the same time, it's paradoxical that in terms of moral values, a set of moral transgressions in literature linked mainly to, in, to the church's morality are praised or naively regarded, right? Yes, yes. Yes, every, at this point, everyone who teaches literature believes that uh, what we call logos, everything we call logos, especially the logos of practical reason, which is also morality, is simply a construction that it gets imposed on us by people in power. Everyone believes that now, okay? So all you had to do was go to Dimsdale and explain this to him, and then he wouldn't be upset, and he wouldn't be ripping his shirt open in the middle of the night because it's all, oh, I understand that now. It's all just uh, a social construct. Well, uh, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. The best example, this is another book I wrote. Uh, well, it's in, it's in the libido dominandi, is Mary Shelley. Mary, Mary Godwin was the daughter of the, the representative of the French Revolution in um, England at the time. And uh, Godwin, uh, William Godwin, her father, said that marriage is the most odious of all monopolies. So there's no, so we should believe in free love. We shouldn't get married. Well, the daughter that you get it from your father. I said before, God is, God is an exalted father. So it's as if God had said this and, and she believed it. And so when Percy Shelley shows up at their house, she has an affair with him, goes to bed with him, sleeps with him, has sex with him. Well, that's fine. Except that you forgot something. He's married. And he just abandoned his 15-year-old wife. And he got married young in those days. It doesn't matter. They go off to have their literary summer in Switzerland. Every, that's where there's the, the, the bad weather, so they have to sit inside, so they start telling horror stories. And suddenly these ideas starts to form in her mind of a story that she wants to write. She gets back to England, and it turns out that Harriet Shelley committed suicide. Because of what you did, Mary, you did it. 
You were the one who caused her death, and she's suddenly consumed with guilt. Now, where did this come from? Didn't come from her father. He said that marriage was the most odious of all monopolies. It's all a social construct. It's imposed on us to control it, but she can't get away from the guilt. How do you deal with this guilt? Well, most people use uh, alcohol or drugs. That's a good way. Hemingway was a classic example who used alcohol to deal with the guilt of adultery. Um, but she, uh, you know, didn't have that type of personality. Maybe didn't, you know. Did. So what she did was write a story about this. And the story is Frankenstein. And Frankenstein is a horror movie. And this is the book I wrote called Monsters from the Id because horror is the, what naturally follows from the violation of the moral law on a, a global basis. And that's what we call a revolution. And that's what the French Revolution was. It was a global repudiation of the church, a global repudiation of the moral law that the church defended, and in, all in the name of freedom. And then when the people started acting on it, they started to feel guilty. And at that point, uh, Mary tried to deal with the guilt by writing horror fiction. And then she basically, it was her way of, of making wrong right. This, you see this thing over, you see this manifestation over and over, over again in various ways, like the Me Too movement. I don't know, do you still remember, did the Me Too movement make an impression down there in Brazil? All of these women accusing uh, Harvey Weinstein, people like that, of sexual uh, harassment, that type of thing. This was all, uh, it was a moral panic based on suppressed guilt. So these manifestations happen over and over and over again, and they will happen unless you get honest with yourself and be able to say, I did something wrong. That's what you have to say. That is the one thing that all of those people in the book Degenerate Moderns could not say. None of them could say that. Mr. Jones, uh, now uh, I would like to ask you something that's not about the exact theme of your work. It's an analogous, a tangent question. In recent decades, especially in the West, we have experienced social and cultural revolutions that, as its core, have promoted sexual liberalization and obviously its acceptance and applause. These circumstances discredited patriarchy as the background of the issue and heterosexuality as the forefront of the dispute, as the moral standard of social conduct. Sexual liberalization, which has its arguments regarding the relativization of human factions and sexual appetites by the psychology currents and its professionals, has led to a situation in which, if homosexual conduct is accepted, it's necessary to look more tenderly at those who commit pedophilia, for example, an abhorrent act in almost all societies. I'd like you to comment on the Catholic Church's confrontation with this revolution as uh, the guardian of truth and good morality at a time when accusations of homosexuality and pedophilia proliferated in dioceses around the world. Okay, so first of all, we have to go back historically uh, to the moment of uh, sexual liberation, the 1960s. Now, this was not, this was a, a global, this was promoted as the zeitgeist. It was the spirit of the times. We were going to uh, liberate ourselves from outmoded 
restraints. Okay, it applied to everyone. And that meant Catholics as well. Catholics were one of the main targets of this, but also the clergy. Now, those who promoted this, it was the Jews, okay, because they controlled the media. They were the ones that broke the code. They were the ones who were got, getting involved in pornography. They were the ones who were uh, banning prayer from schools and so on and so forth. So, uh, well, what, what, were, what was the playbook? Well, the playbook was Wilhelm Reich. Wilhelm Reich wrote a book called The Mass Psychology of Fascism about his experience in Vienna during the 1930s. He was a Jew, he was a, a communist, and he was a Freudian. And he put all those things together and came up with a formula for destroying the Catholic Church because that's what he was involved in at that point. Vienna was a stronghold of the Jews. Uh, Austria, the rural Austria, was a stronghold of the Catholics. How do you destroy the Catholic faith? Uh, because it's the main obstacle to a uh, socialist revolution. The best way is to undermine sexual morality, and the best way to do that is to get to the priest. And how do you get to the priest? You you start promoting uh, masturbation because he said, this is what he said, basically, uh, you should not debate uh, the existence of God with a priest. You should get the priest involved in sexual activity. And at that point, the idea of God evaporates from his mind. It evaporates because of sin. He didn't use the word sin, but that's what he said. Okay, well, that's what happened. Okay, if you go back to the 60s, Reich was the man who had the playbook for the 60s. He was on the cover of the New York Times Magazine in 1970. And uh, basically what he was promoting was what the Jews were promoting was the sexualization of the Catholic Church because that was their main enemy in the culture wars. And they did this by Hollywood, breaking the Hollywood production code where Catholics controlled the Jews. That ended in 1965. 1965 is the year beginning of the Catholic-Jewish dialogue, which weakened the uh, Catholic Church further. And what happened over this period of time is that Catholics across the board succumbed to sexual degeneracy. Now, I'm including priests in this. Now, priests are no different. They have sexual desires, but they've taken a vow of uh, chastity. They cannot engage in that type of thing. So the first wave of sexual liberation hits the Catholic Church, and the heterosexual priests uh, run off and get married. Because you can't be married and be a priest. You have to, you have to basically leave. Once the heterosexuals leave, you're concentrating the percentage of homosexuals in the clergy. This becomes higher. Okay. Then you add uh, more refined attacks here. So uh, Eugene Kennedy does a survey of Catholic priests based on the theories of um, Eric Erickson, a Jew. Okay, even though his name doesn't sound that way, he was a Jew. And uh, there are seven steps of moral development, and step number five is having sexual intercourse. So if you don't have sexual intercourse, you're not a mature person. Well, guess what? That means the entire clergy are made out of immature people. This is going to have a demoralizing effect on the clergy. They're going to be less likely to uh, uphold their vows. They're going to be more likely to act on their desires, and because you have a higher percentage of homosexuals now, you're going to have more homosexuality. And more. Uh, the homosexuality is going to be easy to disguise because you don't get married. You know, it's a solitary thing. It's easy to disguise. And that leads directly to McCarrick and Vigano saying that we have a homosexual mafia running the church. Now, 
the Jews are both, they're the arsonists, and then they're the fire department. Okay, so they, in the 60s, the Jews are the arsonists, where they set the whole country on fire with sexual liberation, and then they're the fire department, and they come back down now on anybody they don't like, and this is now going to be the Catholic clergy, and this is where the abuse crisis came in. The same group of people, I'm talking about the Boston Globe now, uh, outlets like the Boston Globe, were praising these pedophile priests, the priests who were homosexuals, who were attracted to teenagers, praising them for their ministry, are now turning around and condemning them for pedophilia. It's the same group of people who are doing this. This is how this uh, has worked out as a form of cultural warfare. Carlos, Guilherme, alguém vai comentar? Well, uh, we are uh, close to one hour, so I will just make a quick uh, comment and then uh, invite uh, Professor Jones to uh, uh, add what, whatever uh, final observations he wants to make uh, for the Brazilian audience, uh, who's very excited about the uh, release of Degenerate Moderns in Portuguese, uh, we already have two books uh, that you are the author, author of in Portuguese and hope to have more. We hope to have the books that you uh, mentioned today. There are such important works such as Logos, uh, Rising, translated uh, soon, uh, Monsters uh, from the Id, and so many others. But uh, a couple of interesting things about your last comment uh, where that it's not it's not something that is it's done just to the 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 priests it's done across the board everyone it, we have reports of kids in Brazilian schools being encouraged to experiment to find out what their true sexuality is right and that's why how you have a a growth in the number of homosexuals and so on and so forth but of course later they only turn uh, to the pre they only turn on the priests who practice that they are the ones who get um, right right uh, yeah uh, and also you know how the the uh, uh, current hierarchy is not helping because you have priests who are actually trying to fight these things being punished Right. So as an example, we've had a priest in Chicago a few years back who took off. He just took a new parish and then he found an LGBT flag inside the church. He took down the flag and privately burned it privately. It wasn't he didn't make a show out of it. And then he was punished because somebody found out and it uh, came on the newspapers. So the, so uh, and you have, you know, people who are involved with McCarrick, you know, in positions of power. Uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that. You, you can comment however you will, Professor Jones. Yes, yes. I think, what, what do we have in common? The United States and Brazil, uh, large countries, okay? Uh, a, a large Catholic population in the United States and even larger Catholic population in Brazil. Brazil is a Catholic country, okay? It's probably, it's the largest Catholic country in the world, okay? Uh, and both instances, we are suffering from identity theft, okay? The Catholics are constantly being deprived of their identity. 
Now, what, what do I mean by this specifically? Let's look at, at Brazil. Brazil, you have a choice between two anti-Catholic ideologies as your political alternative. So you can be a, a communist uh, or you can be uh, an English conservative, a neoconservative, uh, a flaming supporter of Israel and all of that type of stuff. And where's the Catholic? Where does the Catholic Church fit into this? You this is why this is why it's important to start it's important to start thinking in Catholic categories. These books are proposing Catholic categories. You will never get out of this dilemma if you constantly are internalizing the commands of your oppressors. And that's exactly what happens to Catholics in places like Brazil and the United States. I have to be a liberal uh, like uh, Joe Biden if I want to be a Catholic. I have to support abortion, which means I'm totally in the pocket of that group of people. Or I have to be a conservative, and then that means I have to support Benjamin Netanyahu and the state of Israel. They're both wrong. Where, where, why can't we have our own identity? So if, if I'm, what I'm offering humbly uh, to the people of Brazil is a Catholic alternative to those two dead ends. That's what this book, these are Catholic categories, and I think they'll be helpful in terms of way, uh, a way to see your way through these, these problems. Well, thank you, Professor Jones. I don't know, uh, Guilherme, if you would like to make any final uh, comments or you too, Mateo. Just thank uh, Mr. Jones to be with us. It's been an honor. And Mateus? Dr. Jones, uh, I'm personally honored to talk with you today. And on behalf of the directors of the Legion of Santa Cruz, Cesar Maciel, Rafael Queiroz, Guilherme de la Costa, who were unable to participate today, and our Luther friend, Carlos Lombizani, and Guilherme de Valle. Uh, I'm sure that thanks to you, we are able to bring extremely high quality content to the Brazilian audience. And I hope that we can strengthen this type of joint and public program, our podcast, uh, this public work more and more. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Obrigado. Thank you, Ewe. Thank you, and we, we hope to be able to have you uh, again soon. Be happy to. Thank you.